In the beginning, Bereshit heads for the moon, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. In a few weeks, a small Israeli nonprofit may do something that only the three most advanced spacefaring nations have accomplished. In Hebrew, Bereshit means in the beginning. The lunar lander with that name has begun its journey. We'll talk with Yoav Landsman of Space IL, the team of inspired engineers, techs, and scientists behind this mission, and we'll hear from associate producer Mary Liz Bender, who was at the launch and met a Space IL team member who oversees what the mission is really all about. Later, another What's Up visit with Planetary Society Chief Scientist Bruce Betts. Jason Davis is the Society's digital editor. He's back to share his reporting on the Japanese mission that has just reached a major milestone. Jason, it has been such a busy past few days, and it's not going to let up for a while uh, in space exploration. But we're going to focus in on mainly on Hayabusa 2. You have done some great work on this. Yeah, so Hayabusa uh, last Friday um, touched down successfully. That was obviously the biggest moment of the mission so far. It uh, fired a bullet into the surface of Ryugu and captured some material that sprayed up and safely backed away from the asteroid. So that was a huge success. We're still waiting for some more pictures to come down and see what exactly happened when it was close to the surface. But we did see one really cool picture where you can see the spacecraft shadow and a little um, dark splotch where uh, the thrusters turned on and kind of sprayed away some of the fine material on the surface. So big success for them, and we're looking forward to hearing more soon. Just spectacular to see those shadows. You've got the other one where the spacecraft is farther away. I guess it was on approach, and there's this little cute little shadow uh, that is well defined of the uh, spacecraft being projected onto this this rock. This this rubble pile slash rock. It looks like a Star Wars Tie Fighter kind of. You know, it has solar panels <laughs> does, and then yes. a little thing in the middle. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, this is what we this is what we humans do. We travel across vast distances, reach other bodies, and and shoot at them. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we're not done. You know, there's another experiment on Hayabusa that will make even a larger crater. Um, it uses an explosive to fire uh, a copper bullet into the surface. It actually deploys this little explosives box, and then the spacecraft hides behind the asteroid because this is a much bigger crater that's going to create. So, yeah, stay tuned. More cool stuff to come from this mission. You have these terrific new resources at planetary.org. We'll link to them from the show page uh, as well at planetary.org slash radio for uh, basically everything you might want to know about Hayabusa 2. Uh, and not just Hayabusa 2, but we're doing this with lots of missions, including the one we're going to be talking about with our, our guest uh, in a few moments, Space IL's Bereshit. We've changed the approach of our reporting just a little bit to have these really in-depth resource pages that go along with our coverage. And then when there are new developments, that way we kind of don't have to go back and explain the mission. If you're not caught up, you can just easily check out one of these kind of landing pages and, and get acquainted with the mission. Yeah, and you can reach those if you go to our Explore menu uh, on the website and go to Space Missions. And then there's a nice landing page there that directs you to what we call our Hot Missions. Um, so these are all the space 
spacecraft that are doing lots of things right at the moment. And there's a little map of the solar system there from the Planetary Report, our member magazine, and um, really cool resources. So yeah, I encourage everyone to go check it out. They are very cool. And that's not just my opinion. There are media (laughs) people from all over the world who are now uh, relying on these, but uh, but anybody can go there and, and take a look. Uh, as I said, you do have the one from Space IL, Bereshit, and there was a development on that mission, apparently, what, this morning or, or yesterday that I wasn't even aware of? They had a problem. They went to fire their engine uh, to raise the orbit of the spacecraft because they're over the next few weeks, they have to keep raising the orbit around Earth until finally they intersect with the moon. And uh, they went to fire the engine, and uh, apparently they were out of communication with the spacecraft, and the computer unexpectedly rebooted. And so that triggered a, an immediate abort of the engine firing. From what we can until this morning, uh, the spacecraft is is healthy. They're just trying to figure out what caused this reboot, and um, I'm sure they'll give the engine firing uh, another shot when they get a chance. Well, thank goodness, and and damn those cosmic rays or whatever <laughs> caused this particular glitch. It reminds me of light sail following this mission, which I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm like, oh dear, another thing happened. But they'll they'll um, I'm sure they'll overcome it. Jason, thank you. Thanks, Matt. That's Jason Davis. He is our digital editor at the Planetary Society. And of course, LightSail is relevant because he is also our main reporter on that mission, our embedded reporter in the LightSail 2 mission. By the way, you can hear my conversation with the leader of JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, about the Hayabusa mission and more. It's in our July 25th, 2018 episode. We'll link to it from this week's show page as well. On the night of Thursday, February 21st, another Falcon 9 successfully lifted several payloads into space. One of those payloads carries the dream of Space IL, not just to safely land a spacecraft on the moon, but to inspire millions of young people through this accomplishment. We've got a great conversation with Space IL's senior systems engineer, Yoav Landsman, coming up. First, though, something special from our Mary Liz Bender. Mary Liz was at Cape Canaveral for the spectacular launch. She met members of the Space IL team and assembled this brief recap of her conversation with one of them. I'm an engineer at the IAI. It's the Israeli aerospace industry. That's Molly Martin. I met her for a wonderful discussion on Cocoa Beach the day after the launch. So I came to Florida to watch the Bereshit launch, and it's a very special experience for me. From where we were standing on the beach, we had a view of Bereshit's launch pad where Mally witnessed her first ever rocket launch. And it was very intense. I couldn't speak. I was like, I wanted to do a Facebook Live, but I couldn't speak. Many of her friends couldn't join her at the launch, but she kept in touch as they watched from Israel at 3.45 in the morning. My friends were sending me pictures of the kids waking up with blankets and sitting out in front of the TV. And it was really, really festive and a big excitement. I could really feel it all the way here. But it wasn't just her first rocket launch. It was extra special to Mali because she had a very personal stake in this mission. I started volunteering in Space IL in 2011, actually from the first day. I was helping them with the logistics stuff, and when I went with Kfir, one of the co-founders of Space IL, he was telling me about his dream. 
Kafir Damari, co-founder of Space IL, explained to Mali his vision to use this mission as an education outreach tool. And I think this is the moment that I realized that I will not be part of the engineering team and I'm going to fulfill this educational vision. Mali spent four years designing and managing the Space IL education program. And for eight years, she and the other volunteers gave presentations all across Israel, reaching over one million kids. I mean, we want to, to send a spacecraft to the moon, but the mission was to inspire kids to pursue STEM education. Their reaction is it's excitement. They are very inspired. It really teaches us that we, we just have to find the right story to get to the kids. Just as the Apollo missions inspired so many American kids to become scientists and engineers, the Space IL team hoped to create their own Apollo effect. But now after we see uh, this bursting after the launch and all these kids want to be a part of it, I think we should call it the Bereshit effect. If all goes according to plan, Bereshit will land on the moon and complete its mission in April. But Mali says the education program will continue. We plan on uh, taking the spacecraft story and put it into the science curriculum. Because when you study out of context, it's sometimes boring, sometimes you don't see the point of it. The idea is that kids will enjoy learning science, technology, engineering, and math if they have a real-life example, like the inspiring Bereshit mission, to give it context. I'm so proud I did the uh, education part of the mission because as interesting as the engineering part is, I think that without the educational impact, it won't be the same. I mean, if a bunch of engineers build a spacecraft in this closed laboratory and no one hears about it and kids don't hear about it, we didn't do anything. This was the first uh, vision and our mission. So I'm very proud of the uh, educational impact. But Molly and the rest of the team didn't just teach kids about the spacecraft. Using nanotechnology, they added a collection of the kids' drawings, pictures, and messages to Bereshit's time capsule. I really hope that one day these kids that we met all these years can go to the moon themselves and see the time capsule and all the material they sent. The main question she gets from the kids is whether or not Bereshit will return to Earth. And I tell them, one day you'll be an engineer and you will design the mission that will take Bereshit back here. In the meantime, kids can follow along with the mission and track Bereshit's location following its countdown to landing at live.spaceil.com. The amazing thing about telling these kids all, all these years the story of the spacecraft, there were times that kids could not believe. I mean, I was telling them the story when they were in elementary school, and most of them are now graduated. I think this is the impact, that kids were dreaming about a spacecraft for all this time, and it's eventually happening. This has been a story of inspiration and hope for the kids who grew up thinking that Bereshit was a science fiction story, but today recognize it as a reality. For Planetary Radio, I'm Mary Liz Bender, at Astra. We've posted all of Mary Liz's great conversation with Space IL education lead and engineer Mally Martin as a bonus feature on this week's episode page. You'll find it at planetary.org slash radio. Mally's Space IL colleague, Yoav Landsman, didn't get to make the trip to Florida, but on the very next day, he joined me to help us learn about Bereshit, its mission, and why this small organization of true believers took on such a huge challenge. Yoav, thanks so much for joining us on Planetary Radio so soon after this 
spectacular beginning of your mission, and congratulations on, on how well it's going so far. Thank you, Matt. Where were you for the launch? I was in the mission operations center. It was very exciting to be there. It seems like the whole world is looking at us. The prime minister was at our center and a lot of other very important guests, including our families and co-workers and everyone showed our happiness and enthusiasm and joy. That photo of all of you celebrating in the control room there in Israel uh, has definitely gained worldwide renown, and deservedly so. And it's great to hear that you had your families there as well. <laughs> Obviously, it was a very exciting moment. Beyond words. What is the current status of, uh, of the spacecraft, of Bereshit? The current status is actually better than anticipated. <laughs> oh. I, 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 can, I can say that... Uh, uh, because uh, I have uh, some experience with uh, launching satellites. Uh, I worked uh, with communication commercial satellites uh, in the past. I, I can say that space missions don't go by the book. Um, <laughs> and they're so complex and it's so difficult to test them in the in a real environment as they meet in space. It's actually impossible. When you launch a new spacecraft, and obviously if it's the first of a kind, then uh, you will get your surprises for sure. So uh, we try to uh, plan for this and to anticipate it. Uh, but sometimes you just can't and uh, you rely on your experience and all the very good engineers that are in there to get things done and to, to make sure that the spacecraft uh, works as planned and can take the mission. You could talk to any agency or company around the world that has had this experience, and they would tell you how that they always have their doubts about a first time out with a first spacecraft. So all the more reason for you folks to be proud. I did read this morning that there is a problem with uh, the star tracker or maybe more than one on the spacecraft. And of course, for anybody who's not aware, these are critical because they basically keep you on course. They tell you where you are. Is that a serious challenge? Yeah, first of all, uh, just a minor correction. The star trackers tell us where we point, how the spacecraft is oriented in space and not where we are. The problem is not with one star tracker, but probably with how we anticipated the star trackers will work. So it's an operational problem. And it seems that they get uh, blinded by stray lights from the sun in angles that we did not anticipate it which makes the, the ability of the navigation system to use them somewhat more difficult than uh, what was designed. But the units are okay. They can produce measurements. They produce good measurements. And even if we can't solve the problem completely, which we try to understand what exactly is the problem in order to solve it, um, I think it can be like a chronic disease. You just have to learn mm. how to live with it. And uh, it seems feasible. It's not a critical uh, challenge. It's, it's not a minor one, but, but it's not severe. We, we figure out already some, some ways to go around the problem and to perform our, our burns, our uh, orbit corrections, without triggering this uh, problem. Uh, and we already did our first maneuver, the first perigee increasing yesterday and in about six hours we are doing the the next maneuver which is much bigger 
much, much bigger. It's going to lift the apogee from uh, almost 70,000 kilometers to uh, more than 100,000 kilometers. And we are fully prepared for that. We, we even fixed the testing simulator that we have in order to model uh, this uh, anomaly and uh, let us try what we're going to do, the maneuvers and other stuff that we're planning to do during the mission uh, on the simulator in order to see that we can still operate these uh, tasks to, uh, without this problem. That's an important skill for any operators of a spacecraft, especially spacecraft going to other bodies in our solar system, is to le learn to work around these kinds of uh, challenges. And it sounds like clearly that you're part of that tradition. And yeah. thank you for setting me straight, the function of the star trackers. Let's talk about what is ahead. As I read it, you will be going into orbit around the moon, captured by the moon, early in April, and then expect very soon after that, perhaps as soon as a week after that, to make that landing. Uh, is that correct? That's correct. It's a very tight schedule around the moon. So we have to plan everything in advance and, and try to keep on the schedule. We still have to do several small maneuvers after the, uh, the lunar capture. Actually, one of them is not quite small. We captured the, the moon in an elliptical orbit that is too high to start the landing from. So we have to uh, descend and to decrease the height of the, of the orbit until we are in, in a parking orbit 200 kilometers above the lunar surface. And then we stay in this orbit until the landing site is in the right uh, phase of the moon. The terminator, the, the line between the light and the darkness on the moon is just over this site. So it's uh, it's dawn on the site when we should land. All the maneuvers are planned in advance in order to be there and begin the landing when we are on the perilune, which is the closest point of the orbit above the uh, landing site, the chosen landing site, in the correct time. We have to synchronize the position, the location and the time in a very precise manner, which is quite difficult to do. Why is it important to land at dawn or where on the moon it will be dawn so that you're landing essentially, I assume, at the uh, along the Terminator line where, where night is becoming day? That's right. We are landing in, on uh, the Sea of Serenity. It's crucial that we land on dawn because we designed the spacecraft to withstand temperatures up to a point below the noon temperatures on the surface of the moon. Uh, because it's becoming very hot on the moon during the day. And of course, during the night, it's very cold, but also you don't have electricity if you depend on solar panels. So our only option is to land on the Terminator because uh, then the ground is still, it, it's not cold anymore, but it's not very hot. We can survive there for two or three days, which is enough for everything that we plan to do there. So not too cold, not too hot. I want to talk a little bit more about this this landing. I'm sure you know the old saying, space is hard. We like to say landing somewhere after traveling through space is even harder. How is your level of confidence that uh, this little spacecraft, first of its kind, will be able to get down safely to the surface? You can say I'm optimistic, but I, I do have a high level of confidence in what we do. 
but I also, as an engineer, I understand that it's not guaranteed. Every landing on, uh, I, I believe that it's even landing uh, on the earth, but also uh, landing on other bodies are much harder. And let's face it, we're doing it for the first time for us. So there are a lot of new things that we had, had to learn for ourselves. We have to do, to do it uh, all by ourselves because not a lot of people were involved in such developments of, of landers. Only a few countries land on the moon and most of them will not share information. Um, mm. So it, it's very difficult and it's never done with a spacecraft this small, actually, except the first one to land on the moon, the Luna, Luna 9, which was a bit smaller, but it was very different kind of mission. But I, I think that our mission is, is also different because the spacecraft and the lander is the same thing. It's not a lander that's separated from an orbiter. We, we need to survive a long time in space before we even reach lunar orbit. And then we land with the entire spacecraft. We actually thought about uh, another solution of, of a two-stage spacecraft uh, because we carry a lot of fuel with us. The, the dry mass of the spacecraft is, is one-third of the mass of the fuel we carry. It's like a fuel tanker, right? Yeah. We, we get to lunar orbit, the lowest orbit around the moon, almost empty. The spacecraft dynamics is behaving a lot different than on the beginning of the mission. If we don't have enough fuel, of course, we can't land. But also, if we have too much fuel in lunar orbit, it's too much for us to land because then you you need to have much longer burn in order to uh, decrease the velocity of such a mass we even got a plan to get rid of the extra fuel if we get to the moon with uh, too heavy well, i hope you have a good gas gauge uh, you don't want to get rid of too much obviously <laughs> actually it's easy to to lose fuel you just need to be less efficient during the maneuvers ah you know, if it was easy, you wouldn't be only the fourth entity in the history of the of humanity to do this, right? That's right. That's right. We also uh, have the Indian uh, lander. It's going to be launched uh, soon enough, and I don't know their schedule. But you know what? I, I don't care because it's not a competition anymore. It was once. Mm -hmm. But uh, currently, we just want to land the first privately funded spacecraft on the moon. And it will be the first. And I know you've been asked about this, but of course, you are the first of the former Google Lunar X Prize competitors to get this far. There were those other requirements in the competition that you're no longer planning to, to attempt, like this after the landing, the hop across the uh, surface of the moon. Uh, would Bereshit be capable of that if you thought it was worth the trouble? First of all, it's capable. We, we completed the design of the hop, so the spacecraft can do that, and we, we will have enough fuel to do that. But we will probably not do that. Actually, I, I'm quite sure that we won't do that, because once we land, when we achieve soft landing on lunar surface, then why risk it? It's, yeah. it's, such, a, it's such a great achievement. I think I, I would prefer it to, to stay there as a, as a monument as a, you can call it a heritage site. Yes, 
and 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 not move it because it's already there. So don't touch it. I think it's going to join all those other landing sites on the moon, which someday, hopefully, will all be tourist attractions. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Why was this particular landing site chosen? We had a survey of uh, of a lot of sites, and we we needed a site that is as flat as possible, which is not common on the moon, without uh, huge boulders that can risk the landing because we don't have hazard avoidance. We we can't look at the at the site from close range and decide if if we have to move several meters to this side or to the other side on the spacecraft. It means that the landing is somewhat statistic about where exactly are we going to touch down. It meant for us in the in the development process that we need as much safer site that we can find. With that, because we are also having a magnetometer, a scientific in, uh, instrument, we we needed a site that is from a one point of view, the engineering point of view, is safe to land. And from the scientific point of view, it's interesting. It's conflicting. And I yes. believe it's con it's conflicting in on ev every landing uh, mission uh, ever. This mission is, is an engineering mission. It's a technology demonstrator. We found a place that there is some degree of local magnetism that is worth uh, the measurement. And we, we hope to, to retrieve these uh, measurements uh, during the landing and after the landing for the benefit of science. Of course, that, that, oh, what should we say, that discussion that often takes place between the engineering staff there and the science portion of a spacecraft's team, yes, that is usually something that has to be worked out. Sounds like that has happened. We should also mention that the hazard avoidance capability, that's a very advanced capability that only uh, a few spacecraft have had so far. And that even the uh, the InSight lander that uh, uh, landed on Mars just uh, uh, weeks ago went through the same kinds of concerns that that you folks are. That uh, they picked the smoothest site that they thought that they that they could find and hope for the best. Hopefully, you will be as fortunate as InSight was. Yeah, thank you. I know that you also have a camera, a very high resolution camera. Was this? It looked like it's an off-the-shelf or, or commercially available camera that uh, that you took along. Yes, it is. Uh, we did some small adjustments because we needed to adapt the cameras to our special mission in order to look at the lunar surface from the ground and take pictures of a panorama around, around us, pictures of the landing site. And also one of the cameras is um, tilted down in order to take picture that uh, part of it is the side of the spacecraft itself with uh, one of the landing gear and uh, a plaque with some messages and logos, which was part of the requirements of the Google Lunar X Prize competition. But we, we, we kept that. We, we call it the selfie camera. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we believe that uh, this camera is going to do the best images that uh, we will have from this mission. These cameras have to get the, the uh, far objects clearly as much as we can as the close objects because we see the ground near the spacecraft and also we can see the horizon. 
we had to trade off between between these. Uh, and also, this, these cameras are going to take uh, photographs of the of, of the moon and uh, of the Earth during our flight, because it's such a long journey. So we just have to try this and get best images we can. I hope we we can have uh, some of these soon for the public for everyone. I cannot wait to see those images, uh, like a lot of other people who I'm sure are listening to this. Obviously, those images. And the data from your magnetometer uh, have to get back to Earth. And video. And and video, right. All of this has to get back to Earth. And I think it may be uh, a side of this mission which uh, will not get as much attention as the spacecraft itself. Space IL has done quite a job of putting together a network of receivers uh, here on Earth to be able to communicate with the spacecraft. And then I know you also have uh, worked out an arrangement with NASA for use of the uh, deep space network. Uh, do you also see that as a, as a big part of, of what it took to make this project a success or what we hope will be a success? It's a huge part. People don't, don't recognize this, but communication is one of the biggest challenges of this, uh, of this mission. I, I assume that uh, on any other missions as well, because the distances are so vast. And in a small spacecraft, you can't have a, a huge transmitter. Our small transmitter, which actually is the same transmitter that was on the LADI mission, mm. which uh, orbit the, orbited the moon. It's a small uh, transmitter, and you can't have a, a, a very powerful transmitter because you don't have that much power in a tiny spacecraft. We had to compromise. Uh, and we use uh, this small transmitter and we need to have large dishes for the receiving signals down on Earth. But uh, these are not very common. The, the very large antennas are usually very busy because uh, you don't have a lot of them on Earth. So we, we try to, to find the antennas that are not very small but not very uh, large in order to have a network. And we have an agreement with the uh, SSC, which is a company from Sweden that have uh, all kinds of antennas around the globe. And uh, also they have uh, for us antennas from other companies in order to have this huge network around the world. In October, I think, we had our contact with NASA. We got the DSN, the Deep Space Network for us, for the lunar part of the mission. It makes a huge deal because without them, we have a, a, a link margin, as we call it in engineering, for the descent, for the landing, which is so tight that the, the rate of, of data that we could send was uh, only one kilobit per second. Wow. Yeah, back to the, back to the early days of uh, the internet. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think th this is about the, the rate they use with Voyager, <laughs> with, a, with a huge antennas on Earth. But we're much closer, of course. Uh, but still, this is what it takes. When we have the deep space network of JPL uh, work for us, then we can uh, download on much higher rate. We will get more images and uh, scientific measurements during the descent, just in case... And also a lot of telemetry, which is also important because even if we fail during the descent or if, unfortunately, we crash, we still have the, the data which explains what happened. 
And this is very important for future missions mm. because landing on the moon is not something that's going on right now very often. We can learn from it for all future missions or for anyone uh, in the world that uh, wants to get to the moon. And I've heard that there's a lot of them. You know, that's exactly where I wanted to go next. And I'm so glad to hear you talk about future missions. You've already mentioned India, which, of course, is uh, readying its lunar lander, and some of your other former competitors for the Google Lunar X Prize are, are moving forward as well, and some of them have business models and plans to make a profit. What do you see ahead for Space IL? Let, let's assume that uh, Bereshit successfully uh, uh, spends its time on the moon. Uh, will your company be doing this again, and will you be attempting even more? Well, Space AL, first of all, it's an NPO, so it's not exactly commercial. Right, a, a non-profit. Doing, doing it. Yeah, you guys are set yeah, apart. And, and we're doing it for, for education and inspire people to do things like that or, and to pursue their dreams. So this is just a, a leverage for that. But uh, suddenly we understand that we are part of a huge worldwide trend of getting to the moon. Uh, not only that, but we are pioneering. We are, we are the first that's going to do that. Frankly, Space AL doesn't have plans for, for the next spacecraft. Maybe some other industries in Israel will take that, but maybe they won't. So actually, after the landing and after we finish the mission, we'll probably separate and uh, go to other directions. I don't know. Personally, I'd love to do something like that or even uh, more daring. The education part uh, will continue because funding-wise, it's, it's much easier than to bring a spacecraft to the moon. And how? Yeah. Well, it's also a, a challenge. We, we'll have to wait and see. You are anticipating the questions that I, I want to reach uh, with you. And the next one that I had in mind was about the goal of this mission, this the inspiration, especially for young people that, that you just talked about. And, and apparently, this is something that's very important to you. It is. It is very important to me. Before Space AL, more than six years ago, I left the Israel aerospace industries. I worked there for more than 10 years in uh, communication satellites, in development and operations, system engineering. I left because I wanted to do something else, something that's more about education. And I taught kids and I, I gave a lot of lectures and I, I talked to people. Space is, is very easy to get people inspired about. Well, I don't know why, why but, uh, but it is. It's something that uh, from one side, people are very easily excited about. But on the other hand, most people don't know about almost nothing about space. And in Israel, I think it's even more contraditional. Most people don't know about the Israeli space industries, which is not very small for this kind of country because we, we have more than 10 operational satellites right now in space. It's something that the industry doesn't tend to talk about because in the beginning, it was mostly military satellites, but currently most of them are commercial, commercial imaging and commercial communications, and uh, even one, more than one, actually, scientific missions, and now uh, a deep space mission. So something is changing. We in Space AL 
wish to see this change will also arrive to the public. We arranged this group of about 200 lectures, volunteer lectures. That's a very awesome group that's going freely on the spare time to, to schools and to uh, kindergartens and all over the country, even uh, to very far places, just to talk with the kids about what we are doing and get them inspired by it. When we got to the launch, we, we already seen more than one million kids in this country and, and told them about what we're doing. And we got, uh, for the launch, we got so many photos, a, lo a lot of work that the kids did in their uh, uh, school sessions and songs and uh, video clips and animations. And it, people went crazy about this. It was overwhelming. I don't think that, that anyone in Space AL imagined that it will be so, so vast. It, it was heartwarming. Yoav, I'm going to make a prediction that in 15 or 20 years, you and the other members of the team that uh, uh, put Bereshit on the moon will be constantly greeted by men and women who want to shake your hand and will tell you that this mission inspired them to become an engineer or a scientist or just to become more science literate. Uh, so I congratulate you since this is a goal we share at the Planetary Society. Thank you so much. It's very important to me personally. It's very important to us, the organization of Space AL. Uh, and we're doing this for the people in Israel and the people of the world in order to share our enthusiasm about, about space, about deep space, about exploration. It's very important to us to say that. What is the best way for our listeners and others to, to follow the progress of the mission and perhaps to see some of what has happened with the educational uh, component of the mission? We have a site, uh, an, an internet site, uh, spaceil.com. Part of the site is uh, specifically for children. Also in social me media, uh, we, we share every, every time we, we upload uh, some new stuff and new ideas for activities, new videos. Uh, so follow us by all means. I will. And uh, so will many of our listeners, I'm sure. And we wish you the greatest of success as uh, barely more than a month from now, uh, Bereshit, which means in the beginning in Hebrew, uh, makes its uh, descent to the lunar surface. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, 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 I can't, I, I can't uh, say in words uh, what, uh, what I felt when, when you uh, addressed me of, uh, of doing this interview. So thank you, Matt. <laughs> I'm very excited about this. You are extremely welcome. We've been talking with uh, Yoef Landsman. He is a senior systems engineer at Space IL, which um, has uh, sent Bereshit toward our planet's only natural satellite. And with some luck in a few weeks, we'll become only the fourth entity, three nations and Space IL, to have uh, achieved a successful landing on the moon. Thank you very much. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. I am in the Planetary Society headquarters, Ace Media Studio, former bank vault, with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. Welcome. Thanks. Good to see you, Matt. 
I have a couple of messages up front for you. As you know, we are once again giving away the coveted rubber asteroids. Perry Metzger in New York, New York. I cheered at the return of the rubber asteroids. May they remain plentiful and continue orbiting the podcast for billions of years to come. <laughs> well, I don't know that we can promise that, but, but I'm glad we got a bunch of them. A couple of eons might, might have to do. You might have to settle for that. It might just be a couple eras, but whatever. You're going to like this one, too. Jason Gillette of Cleveland, Ohio. If I'm lucky enough to receive a rubber asteroid, I promise I will throw it at my friends' heads and yell, wouldn't have happened if you had a space program until they joined the society. Love the show. Please keep up the good work. Excellent. You should probably do that anyway. Well... No, maybe not. Don't throw rocks at your friends, but do encourage them to join the Planetary Society. We're going to have another opportunity to win a rubber asteroid in just moments after we hear about the night sky and all that other cool stuff that you have for us. Okay, it's a good time to see Mercury. It's it's never a great time to see Mercury because it hangs out near the sun. But if you look in the evening low in the west, you might be able to pick it up. A little bit higher up, you can see Mars looking reddish and kind of a sort of bright star. In the pre-dawn, we've still got the planetary party going on from lowest to highest near the eastern horizon before dawn. You've got super bright Venus, less bright uh, Saturn, and then bright Jupiter hanging out there. And on the 2nd of March, uh, you can see the moon hanging out with Venus. It'll be spectacular, crescent moon and Venus. In the evening sky, also check out Orion if you you probably have with really bright stars. And if you follow Orion's belt to the left, for lack of a better term, you'll find the brightest star in the sky, Sirius. And if your sky is not totally light polluted, try to work out the shape of a dog. Sirius is in Canis Major, and it's one of the few constellations I think at least looks like a stick figure dog. As Orion kind of looks like a guy with his arms up. Exactly. Look, I'm doing Orion. <laughs> down boy (laughs) all right Uh, we move on to this week in space history it's the 50th anniversary of the apollo 9 mission apollo 9 the earth orbiting mission that tested out the lunar module for the first time in space 40-year anniversary of the voyager 1 flyby of jupiter and the beginning of the voyager encounters in the outer solar system That is quite an anniversary. Yeah, that's not one that we've celebrated before. Of course, it wasn't the 40th, was it? We could have done the 30th. (laughs) And I'm sure we did. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Somebody's going to look it up and tell us. Okay, we move on to Ronald Space Fact. So much better in person. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So Apollo 9 with its test of the lunar module, was the first time that people were ever in a spacecraft in space that could not safely return them to Earth. If things had failed when they were hanging out in the lunar module, they were just, um, well, it would be bad. But they didn't, and all worked out wonderfully. Now, they had a command module right next door, right? But they, I mean, they did separate, so I see what you mean. Yeah, they were flying separately in something that they couldn't go home in. So they they were dependent, just as, of course, the later lunar missions were dependent on reconnecting with the, uh, with the command module that could bring them back in safely. They should have just gone to the moon. Yeah, that's how orbital <laughs> dynamics works. 
<laughs> Contest time. All right. I asked you what are the two brightest stars in the Big Dipper, and uh, foolishly, apparently, I did not specify as seen from Earth. In other words, the apparent brightness as opposed to the absolute brightness. So as much as it pains me, we will take either. In the answer, I was looking for, hey, you look up at the Big Dipper, what are the two brightest stars? But we'll take either. Go for it. Foolishly apparently or foolishly absolutely? It was absolutely foolish not to include the, uh, and, and turned out to be an apparent uh, mistake. Howard Grams, longtime listener, first time winner as far as I can tell. He's in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Alpha, and I don't know how to pronounce the first one there. I've seen various pronunciations. Dub, dub, ho, dub, hey, doobie. Uh, as people who have listened long enough know, I have no idea. I pronounce it dubhe, dubhe, and then, of course, alioth, alioth. Both of which have an apparent magnitude of 1.8, 1.8, which is pretty bright. It is pretty bright, and uh, they just barely edge out al-Qaed, which is 1.9. Congratulations to you, therefore, Howard, and we are going to get you the very first of this new crop of Planetary Society Kick Asteroid Rubber Asteroids and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account. But I do have some other stuff first. This came from Narahari Rao in uh, Sugarland, Texas. We hear from him pretty regularly. And uh, I just thought it was an interesting story. He says there's a rather sad Arabic tradition, according to which the constellation of the Big Dipper is actually a funeral procession in which the four stars of the Dipper form the beer and the three stars of the handle are mourners following the coffin. Wow, that's a cool cultural story, kind of a bummer. It, it is, but it's a nice indication of how different cultures look at the same stars and come up with very different meanings. Gets the, the plow in the UK frequently and some other parts of Europe, the saucepan. Here's Joseph Poutre of Fanwood, New Jersey. He says, if we were to find bubbling water springs on a planet around another star in the Dipper that you just mentioned, Alcade, would that be Alcade Seltzer? He says, yes, I know, that's a dubious joke. Oh, cool. <laughs> you like that. Wait a pun. Finally, from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Shawnee, Kansas, the Dipper has just seven stars, and Alioth is one that leads the pack from front to back and is the brightest one, with Dubhe coming close behind, although our eyes can't see. It isn't just a single, but a spectro-binary. Ooh. Thank you, Dave, and we'll move on. Apparently, in an absolute sense, where will the Hayabusa 2 sample return capsule land when it returns to Earth with samples of asteroid Ryugu? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until Wednesday, March 6 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. And as we said, you might win yourself, you want to say at this time, a Planetary Society kick asteroid. Rubber asteroid. Well done. And a 200-point itelescope.net account. You can do some uh, astronomy, find some asteroids uh, from uh, pretty much any place on Earth with those remote telescopes uh, all over our planet. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about foam. Thank you, and good night. Are you talking about the foam that covers the walls here in the Planetary Society studio? 
or the foam that apparently fills all of what we generally have talked about as the vacuum of space, the quantum foam. Actually, the foam that covers the inside of my room at home. Some people call it padding, and some people don't call it a home. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its wonderful members. Mary Liz Bender is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Ad Astra and Ad Luna. Ad Luna.